The right-wing U.S. Supreme Court decides to help spread COVID. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema join with the Supreme Court and the Republican Party to destroy voting rights, especially for Black Americans. Yesterday, people around the country took to the streets to remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and to keep fighting for justice. And the U.S. war machine continues its escalation of threats against Russia at the Ukrainian-Russian border. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's January 18th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthroughnews. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing and register for our monthly seminar with Brian, which will be held on Monday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Patrons at any tier, which starts at just $5 a month, can submit questions for Brian to address on the seminar and ask questions live during the discussion. Join us. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Esther Ivarum and our host, Brian Becker. Walter Smolarek is out today and next week. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start today? Well, let's talk about the focus of the protests or the demonstrations or the parades that took place yesterday on the day that the country honors, remembers, celebrates the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Of course, Dr. King was a radical. He faced all kinds of state-sponsored terrorism, not to mention extra-legal terrorism by white racists, white supremacists in southern states and in northern states as well as he campaigned for civil rights. So as the country was forced to recognize Dr. King as a consequence of the really profound, large-scale mass protests that took place in the 1980s demanding that Dr. King's birthday be remembered as a federal holiday. And the Ronald Reagan administration, yes, it was the conservative, racist Ronald Reagan that finally gave in to that demand, and Martin Luther King's birthday became a federal holiday. While that happened, and that was amazingly important, it's also true that Dr. King has been made something of, a, of an icon without a real sense of his legacy. He was a radical. He fought against racism. He fought against poverty. He fought against war. If he had not been assassinated on April 4th, 1968, I believe that Dr. King would have united and been the real leadership, the core leadership of the two mass movements that were dominating the United States in 1968. That was the predominantly Black-led and Black civil rights movement, although there were millions of whites in it too. 
and a more predominantly white anti-war or peace movement against the war in Vietnam. Of course, there were millions of black people involved in that. But there were two parallel movements, and they were distinct. And Dr. King made this unbelievably heroic effort to bring the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement together. He made that speech at Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967, one year to the day before he was assassinated, where he said the U.S. government is the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet, where he supported the rights of the Vietnamese people to determine their own destiny, where he said that the United States government must reject imperialism and reject colonialism. When he did that, Dr. King was in many places disinvited from speaking. He was shunned. And yet he was the hope for building a massive, truly massive movement of the tens of millions against war and racism, against war and poverty. And a year later, an assassin's bullet took his life in Memphis, where he was supporting the workers, the sanitation workers who were on strike. So here we are recognizing that Dr. King's legacy is important to all of us, that Dr. King was, in fact, a radical. Dr. King was a socialist, as was Coretta Scott King. She was probably a socialist before he was. Matter of fact, she probably gave him the books which pointed him in the direction of socialism when they were starting to date in the early 1950s. Even though those are the facts about Dr. King's life, they're largely unknown. And instead, we sort of remember Dr. King as a pacifist, as a purveyor or an advocate for nonviolence, all of that. But here we are, 2022, and we have the reality that capitalist America and the capitalist government is actually trying and is in some ways effectively undoing many of the signal or signature achievements of Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Most important, or let's not say most important, but certainly among the most important, is the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 that outlawed apartheid, that said people could not be denied entrance to a motel or into a bus station or into an emergency room because of the color of their skin. The Civil Rights Act ended formal legal apartheid in America in 1964. But in 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed, and that was also significantly far-reaching because the law in 1965 placed the burden of proof on government officials to prove why any changes that they might be proposing or seeking in election law were not discriminatory because of their history of discrimination. Starting in 2013 with the new Supreme Court ruling, voters who are discriminated against now had the burden of proving that the laws that have been changed were designed with intent to disenfranchise or to disempower them. Of course, something that can't really be proven. On July 1st of last year, in 2021, the Supreme Court heard the Arizona case, which further strengthened the essential evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. And now we have, Esther, in Congress, an effort by the Democratic Party to restore voting rights, which are, it's not just at the courts or even in the earlier rulings or the earlier movements by state legislators to restrict voting rights, 
or to end voting rights for some people. But there is a you know monumental nationwide campaign right now going forward to eviscerate voting rights all around the country, especially for the black and Latino communities. And the U.S. Congress, which is under the control of the Democrats, could pass a far-reaching Voting Rights Act that stops this. But we learned last week that Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have decided they are not going to vote to end the filibuster, the one necessary measure that would be needed to support voting rights. They said, yeah, we support voting rights, but we have to maintain the filibuster that allows the Republicans to veto anything that we want to do right now. And as a consequence, all of the things that Dr. King and that mass movement fought for are on the chopping block right now. I mean, the situation couldn't be more grave. That's right. Just before Manchin and Cinema were supposed to meet with Biden last week. You know, Cinema went onto the floor of the Senate to speak out about why she, you know, seemed like she was half, you know, like sounding very emotional and shaking about it, but that she just could not, you know, part with this Jim Crow relic, the filibuster, in order to pass this vital legislation. Brian, Nicole, I. I'm not really sure how to hear cinema when she talks about this or mention, because the fact is that if they don't, as a party, pass some type of federal law to nullify these laws being passed in states around the country, they are poised to not be able to win elections locally or nationally for some time to come. They are really giving the Republicans, which is really a kind of proto-fascist party right now, the majority in Congress, certainly. And that doesn't seem to be a factor in, in these types of statements that she's making. I think we want to play her comments she made, right, on the floor last week. While I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. Eliminating the 60 vote threshold will simply guarantee that we lose a critical tool that we need to safeguard our democracy from threats in the years to come. The thing is, if they can't pass these laws right now, they really won't be in a position to safeguard anything. (laughs) I mean, think about her, what she's actually saying. She's saying the disease of division between the Republicans and the Democrats, whereby the Republicans won't support anything any of the Democrats do, is so grave that she can't do anything that would exacerbate that. And so if we eliminate the filibuster, then we're possibly limiting or reducing or eliminating our democracy. So what the issue is right now is do Black Americans have the same rights to vote? Because state after state after state are taking measures designed explicitly to prevent black people from voting. That's what's at stake. So cinema and mansion, and apparently the Democrats are not still willing to really call them out. They're saying, look, our democracy might be really imperiled unless we allow the Republicans to snuff out the democratic rights of black people. I mean, that's the logic of this position. Yeah. And the the other thing that's important to note is that while the federal law is requiring the supermajority to pass what should be just basic rights in this country, 
Republicans around the country, they are passing these laws with a simple majority, right? So maybe with 51 votes or, you know, so there's just a tremendous imbalance there. Right. I mean, theoretically, the people of the Senate are elected because they represent their constituencies. I think that's obviously arguable. But in, you know, in the theory of U.S. democracy, that's what's supposed to be the case. So if there's 51 senators who want to do this, then why can't they do this? I mean, and of course they can. And the reason that they don't have 51 is because Cinema and Manchin have decided they don't want to do this. But the ridiculousness, the outrageousness of the rule that each party, every time the Senate is newly formed every six years, that the Senate itself puts this rule of you have to have 60 votes in order to pass something. It's a rule. It's not a law. I mean, they put this rule into place every six years. They don't have to do that. And it's been taken away before. The 60 vote majority has been taken away before. And the fact that it exists at all is just a really anti-democratic idea. I mean, it's a really anti-democratic thing, like lowercase d, actual democracy. Right. And we know that the Senate itself is an undemocratic relic. I mean, the way it's formulated, it gives these small, largely white and often rural states in this country the same power or the same voting power as, like, say, a large, populous, more ethnically diverse state like California. So this is just adding more inequality, adding more undemocratic process on top of a body that is already undemocratic. Yeah. For instance, California has 39 million people in California and Wyoming has about 600,000 and both states have two votes in the U.S. Senate. Right. Right. And, you know, to add on to that, of course, Washington, D.C. has more than 600,000 people, but does not have senators at all. So, I mean, it's just layer upon layer upon layer. And moreover, when you listen to what Cinema says, you know, she talks about this disease of division. I think the biggest disease in this country is racist U.S. capitalism. I mean, that's the disease. The disease isn't division. The disease is why can some people vote and some people can't? I mean, that's just basic. And in fact, let's take the formulation disease of division. I mean. The United States has been divided since the beginning and even before the beginning of the republic because some people were free people, some people were enslaved people. The United States in many of the states, like say South Carolina or North Carolina, at different times around the time the United States became an independent republic, if not the majority, near the majority of the population was enslaved. Now, wouldn't that be a fundamental division? And then after the end of formal slavery, for the next hundred years, that same population was discriminated against systematically and institutionally, even though the black population was no longer, quote, enslaved, they were still unable to vote. So that Mississippi and Alabama, by 1910, Only 2% of the black population was able to exercise the vote. And even in the early 1960s, before the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, people were risking their lives to vote. Matter of fact, when Schroener, Cheney, and Goodman, when the Freedom Summers came to the South, when people tried to register people to vote, uh, they were met with terrorist violence. So if we're going to talk about the disease of division, and somehow pretend 
that the disease of division is between Republicans and Democrats rather than the disease of division caused by these systems of white supremacy, then it misses the boat completely. And the fact that this isn't like really at the tip of the tongue of all of the CNN and MSNBC and so-called liberal commentators, why not take Manchin and Cinema and anybody else holding their position, including the Republicans who are eviscerating voting rights for black people and Latino people in the different states, say that's the division. Yeah, we're against division. How do you overcome division? Well, you stop discriminating against whole peoples based on ethnicity and race. Anyway, that's the division in America. Biden attempted to draw out some of these historical lessons that you're talking about in his speech in Atlanta last week. I know some people felt it rang hollow, but he did bring out some of these historical facts. You know, Mitch McConnell was given, you know, kind of like that balanced airtime to basically rebut and basically say that, you know, he was not being, Biden was not being presidential and that those comments were beneath the presidency without any historical context, like what you just gave, for example, in this whole debate about these two bills, which are watered down because of Joe Manchin's effort, you know, there's been no historical analysis really reported in depth in the corporate media. And meantime, these efforts to disenfranchise people around the country are going on at full speed. You know, I was just reading an article about how Lucy McBath, who ran for office after her son Jordan was, you know, killed in a racist murder, her district in Georgia has been totally eliminated in this new round of redistricting happening in Georgia. And she has to run in a new district, which is is not her original constituency and that she is having to compete in a largely white rural new district because her district has been eliminated. So, you know, while cinema is taking to the floor and they're wringing their hands about division, the real efforts, the real life actions by these Republicans are going on. And it's almost as if, you know, like you said, this real division, these real actions aren't being talked about. And I want to also, you know, everything that we've talked about, especially some of the the history and, you know, the real founding of this country on racism and on, you know, racist capitalism, you know, really undergirds why voting rights is actually such an important issue. And there's so many people just, you know, like both of you were just saying that the anchors on CNN aren't pushing back on this. There's also people on the left who aren't pushing back on this. I think on the basis that Well, you know, you only get to vote really every four years and you only get, you know, one candidate or the other and neither of them are really going to serve us and serve, you know, the people. But that's not a good reason to not really, really act on and push on voting rights. I mean, this is essentially the issue, right? I mean, the idea that officials around the country can discriminate on the most basic of rights, on being able to vote for the people that represent you on being able to have the franchise of voting in this country, the fact that officials are able to start doing that and are doing that. I mean, that is the ultimate thing that we, you know, as socialists, as activists, as organizers, as people of conscience, we have to fight back against that. It's of the utmost importance. There was an article that I thought was pretty good by Jeffrey Isaac. He's a professor of political science at Indiana University. And he has several quotes from throughout history that really talks about voting as one tool for organizing. You know, 
like you mentioned, there's so many people on the left will say, you know, well, we're not going to have a revolution through the ballot box. Of course we're not. But we can't take away this vital tool that working people have to have a say in what is constructed to be a democracy, right? So I wanted to just read a couple of them, okay? So Frederick Douglass wrote in 1872 in his speech, Give Us the Freedom Intended for Us. He said the elective franchise without protection in its exercise amounts to almost nothing in the hands of a minority with a vast majority determined that no exercise of it shall be made by the minority. Freedom from the auction block and from legal claim as property is of no benefit to the colored man without the means of protecting his rights. The black man is not a free American citizen in the sense that a white man is a free American citizen. The reason without the right to vote, he cannot protect himself against encroachments upon his rights and privileges. And then, you know, next there was a quote from Ida B. Wells and she had a speech she made in 1910. And she said this about voting as a way to stop lynching. The flower of the 19th century civilization was the abolition of slavery and the enfranchisement of all manhood. Here at last was the squaring of practice with precept, with true democracy, with a declaration of independence and with the golden rule. The reproach and disgrace of the 20th century is that the whole of the American people have permitted a part to nullify this glorious achievement and to make the 14th and 15th amendments to the constitution playthings, a mockery and a byword an absolute dead letter in the Constitution of the United States. So those things, like more than a century ago, were written. And we're here in 2022 debating this whole thing because, as Brian said, it's about do Black people have the right to vote? The Republican Party is on the offensive, state after state, eviscerating the rights of Black voters and Latino voters. And, you know, it's clear why why they are. I mean, the GOP can't really continue to be a dominating ruling class party as it's currently organized as basically a white party unless it can end the votes of black people. That's really what's going on. It's not that complicated. And so you have voter ID laws, all kinds of specific restrictions that were established, especially after the Supreme Court decision of 2013 that put the burden of proof on individuals who had been disenfranchised rather than the states that were disenfranchising them. All of these restrictions, it's a kind of what's been happening to abortion rights. Wherever at the state level, state legislatures can take actions, pass laws that restrict, contract, limit, or in many ways, begin the ultimate evisceration of women's right to control their own bodies, they're doing the same thing about black voting rights. That's the strategy. And of course, as long as we have a federalist system where the states have sovereignty and can make their own rules or laws, unless there's a national law that prohibits them, this will be the tactic that the state reactionary right-wing state legislatures and behind them, the capitalists, the corporations and the right-wing political entities, that's what they're going to keep doing. The only way to defend the rights of people in Georgia and Florida and Texas, whether it's abortion rights or black voting rights, is to have national legislation caused by a national movement that requires 
all of these rights be upheld equally in all 50 states. Now, it's really important for people to understand how this so-called citadel of democracy, this system of democracy that Kirsten Cinema says is endangered right now, how it's fundamentally not democratic, how it's fundamentally constructed to limit democracy. And whenever there's been an expansion of democracy, it's not because of the actions inside of Congress or the Supreme Court. It's because of what happens in the street, what happens with the movement of people. That's the only time that you know things start to happen. Like the university in Chicago that's changing the name of its law school from the John Marshall Law School to something else, that is taking place, or has maybe it's already happened now, it's taking place because of the nationwide uprising against racism that took place after the killing of George Floyd. Now, I want to just mention this. Maybe it's a digression, but I think it gets right to our point. John Marshall is by far considered the most important you know, American Supreme Court justice. You know, biographers usually call him the great chief justice. There was a documentary made about him recently called The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. He's supposedly like the icon of jurisprudence and central to U.S. constitutional development. Now, John Marshall was not only someone who owned enslaved people, He was an aggressive trader in slaves. He made his money. He became ever, ever richer by the market of human beings, of black people. That's who the great man who made the Supreme Court, Roger Taney, the brother-in-law of Francis Scott Key, the author of the Star Spangled Banner, the national anthem. Roger Taney was the judge who upheld the Dred Scott decision. Uh, which really led to the Civil War that was in 1857. That decision said there are no rights that black people have in the North or the South, enslaved or free people that white people have to respect. Meaning if you were an enslaved person like Dred Scott and you went to another part of the country where slavery was not legal, the person who enslaved you could come and capture you and bring you back to slavery. That was the Dred Scott decision. Roger Taney owned slaves. So all of the people, I don't know if you all saw that article in the Washington Post, there was an attempt to determine how many members of the U.S. Congress over time actually owned human beings, how many people were enslavers who were the great in the citadel of democracy, the U.S. Congress. The number we have now, according to this recent Washington Post story, is 1,700 former Congress people owned human beings. They were the ones who made the laws. You know, 13 of the first 16 presidents of the United States were from Southern states where slavery was the essence of the capitalist market and capitalist production. I mean, when you think about these facts and say there is now an effort to roll the clock back and take away the rights to vote for black people, it's not about the issue of the vote per se, It's about the issue of rights and equality for tens of millions of black people in America. And if anyone doesn't understand the centrality of that, they're missing the boat. It's not about the vote per se. It's about the rights of people per se. And you can't have revolutionary change without putting the fight against racism and the centrality of freedom and equality at the very center. Brian, there's one 
missing piece here that I think we should talk about. Why do you think Biden decided after all these years, you know, he's been a creature of the Senate, this undemocratic institution. Why do you think he decided after all these years to support getting rid of the filibuster and to have this speech in support of voting rights? I think the reason Biden made the speech to get rid of the filibuster, he didn't do it really when it came to the Build Back Better bill. He could have made the argument then. He didn't do that. Instead, he spent all of his time huddled behind closed doors with Manchin, and Manchin kept whittling down the bill, and Biden kept agreeing to whittle down the bill. And then finally, Manchin just came out and said, look, I'm not supporting the bill no matter what. And Biden was basically just handed a big defeat. So then I think what Biden did is he went on national TV to say, we need to get rid of the filibuster. I really mean it this time because he wanted to get the voting rights bill passed because that was the only thing left. So if everything else in his legislative package had been destroyed, this effort to show some solidarity with the black community, which is the most important voting block for the Democratic Party, was, I think, designed for narrow purposes. It wasn't really because Biden had moved to the left or anything. I think it was because he had already been defeated on Build Back Better. He didn't demand the filibuster be changed. He wanted to make at least a symbolic gesture towards the black community that the filibuster should end so that voting the voting rights bill could be passed. And I think he probably also knew that it was likely that Cinema and Manchin would torpedo that but at least he would be on record for having stood up for black voting rights. So I think that was the real reason. That was the maneuver, the maneuveristic thinking of the Biden administration for this intervention. Well, I think we also have to view this, the Supreme Court's role in kind of eviscerating voting rights in connection to other topics we've been talking about. So late last year, their role in upholding, allowing this clearly illegal abortion law in Texas to stand, basically paving the way, opening the door with that case and in the Mississippi case to eviscerate Roe Roe versus Wade and a woman's right to choose. And then last week, they struck down the Biden administration's vaccine or test mandate for large employees. And this would have mandated that employees with more than 100 people on staff have some type of system in place so that you are either vaccinated or you get tested weekly. And health officials, you know, labor experts around the country are really criticizing this ruling because this was the Biden administration's attempt to use the power he has to try to make Americans safe. You know, we have a spike in the Omicron, which may be going down now, but at the the point that this was passed, it was to really address public safety. And, you know, even the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, got on TV saying last week a very common sense statement, I think, which was that, you know, people are talking about all these jobs being open. But one of the reasons why people aren't going back into jobs is because they don't think that it's safe. And so this rule was an attempt to make things safe. And by the Supreme Court striking it down at the same time they're upholding the ability of the state to tell a woman she has to have a baby, right? And at the same time, eviscerating voting rights. You see the clear track record of the Supreme Court. And I can't help but relate it to the agenda of the Trump 
regime, which included Steve Bannon, to dismantle the administrative state and to basically say that the Department of Labor, OSHA, no, you have no right, you have no authority to tell corporations what to do and to how workers should be governed. One of the things that has made me completely irate in this Supreme Court decision to block the Biden administration from enforcing vaccine requirements or testing for large employers, you know, there are some companies who have waited to hear what the Supreme Court was going to say before deciding whether to put in a vaccine requirement or something like that. And in reading some coverage about this, there's a New York Times article that includes this insane phrase that some companies that have waited to decide what to do about mandates or requirements or testing have, quote, cited concerns about the costs of setting up testing programs, unquote. And I mean, my mind almost is just blown because the costs of setting up testing programs are obviously nil compared to the massive, massive cost and huge death toll that we have in this country from the coronavirus. And the costs of setting up testing programs are obviously almost nothing when you compare it to the cost of not being able to get your family member or your your neighbor or your friend into the hospital for a grave illness or concern because the hospitals are completely overrun. The costs of setting up testing are nothing compared, you know, to the massive healthcare costs that we're that we're dealing with. I mean, it's just mind-blowing the way that this capitalist system works. But of course, these companies are you know, listening to their shareholders. They're driven to make more and more profit when the profit we need to be talking about is, you know, the profit of life, like making sure that people are able to walk out of their door and not get a deadly illness and die as so many people are doing. This is probably a good place to mention the Kroger employees who 8,000 of Kroger supermarket employees went on strike last week in Chicago, in Colorado. And one of the things that they were striking for, in addition to better wages, is better health care. You know, 14% of these workers have experienced homelessness. And we're talking about homelessness in the middle of a pandemic when people need to have a home to be safe. And they're talking about the fact that you know, grocery stores are some of the most profitable businesses during the pandemic. If people aren't buying anything else, they're buying food. And the corporate parent of Kroger, they've made out like bandits. But the workers, I think one statement from the organizers is that what did we get? We got COVID. So that just ties into what you're saying, Nicole. It's outrageous. And we have to, you know, stand up for the workers and stand up for what's really happening. What is the effect of what the Supreme Court is doing? And Esther, you know, back to your original point too. you know, the idea that the Supreme Court is saying, sure, states like you're more than welcome to ensure that women aren't able to get the health care that they need. I mean, this, you know, this really regressive, really harmful, really disgusting argument and decision that, you know, allows states to regulate against people. The same Supreme Court is making the decision that the Biden administration is not able to regulate for people is not able to right. say, you know, is not able to control what states are doing that are, you know, that are harming people, like deciding to go ahead and let companies just go ahead on into the office with no masks, with no testing, with, you know, no vaccine, with the things that we know work to deal with this, the things that other countries are actively using to deal with this, again, 
I sometimes worry, do people forget? Like, this is a pandemic. Two years ago, none of us could imagine this. This is a pandemic. And the way that people are acting, you know, it's just, it really says a lot. I don't know what the end game is for these Republicans and the far right advancing these programs. You just had the newly elected governor in Virginia try to issue an executive mandate, an executive order, so that parents throughout Virginia could decide whether their children wore a mask in school. Now, what kind of safety measures can any school district take if you give parents the right to decide whether their children will wear a mask. So that's blown up as an issue, you know, with Jen Psaki, I guess a resident of Arlington, pushing back against Yunkin, and a lot of the Northern Virginia school districts pushing back, saying that, no, you don't have the authority to do that. So the authority about how we are safe, who keeps us safe, who has the right to keep us safe, this is all being made into a political football instead of a health issue. Exactly. And, you know, Jen Psaki is part and parcel of that political football, right? I mean, exactly. it's the same Jen Psaki who stood in front of the press corps in the White House and said sarcastically, oh, so you want us to send a test to every American? And then, you know, reporters reasonably were like, well, yeah, that could work. Other places are doing that. I mean, you know. Right. And she also stood in front of the press corps and, you know, criticized the Chicago teachers for wanting to keep children and the staff safe in Chicago. She also stood in front of the press corps and said, quote, (laughs) we could certainly propose legislation to see if people support bunny rabbits and ice cream, but that wouldn't be very rewarding for the American people, unquote. I mean, just throwing like disgusting, Mm. like sarcasm bombs at anything that anyone is asking that is pretty reasonable. By the way, the government of China was confronted with a small outbreak of the Omicron variant in one of the areas in China. And last week, when the news came that a number of people had gotten COVID in that area, the government tested 12 million people in six hours, 12 million tests in six hours in order to control this outbreak. Again, showing that if the government is organized, if it has as its primary goal to protect the public, And that obviously is what the Chinese government is doing. I know some people will say that that's an example of autocracy or taking away people's freedoms. But obviously, the only motivation of the Chinese government to test 12 million people in six hours in a place where COVID was breaking out was to prevent a further outbreak of COVID. And of course, as a consequence, China, as we've said over and over again, a country that's four times the size of the United States had only two COVID deaths in 2021, and they only had 5,000 deaths overall. And of course, that's where COVID started. Before we go on to some other big stories, including I want to go back to a topic that we came to and discussed last week, that is the growing danger of war between the United States and Russia in Ukraine. I do want to say one or two other quick things about new news from here in the nation's capital. The Justice Department has charged Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, one of the right-wing fascist organizations, along with the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters. They've charged Stuart Rhodes with seditious conspiracy, and 10 other people at the same time were charged with seditious conspiracy. Seditious conspiracy, I, I have the 18 U.S. Code 2384 seditious conspiracy. I'll read a couple of sentences so you 
you, our audience, understands what seditious conspiracy means. If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force, here it is, to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, et cetera, et cetera, are guilty of seditious conspiracy. Now, the reason the Oath Keepers and Stuart Rhodes and the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys who are organized fascists, not to mention just the rank and file, you know, Trump fan base that came to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, they came here because Trump called them to come. He said it was going to be a wild day. Remember, he said we have to bring people together. They have to fight. They have to condemn Mike Pence if he doesn't use his authority as president of the Senate to not certify the outcome of the 2020 election, meaning Trump was trying to use human beings en masse, along with other pressures on the U.S. senators and Congress people, to not certify a constitutionally mandated process which upheld the Electoral College certification on December 14th that Joe Biden indeed was the winner of the 2020 election. So if you're going to charge Stuart Rhodes or the three percenters or anybody with seditious conspiracy and not charge Donald Trump, it doesn't make any sense. It means you're going for the low-hanging fruit, the rank and file or these low-level fascists and being able to target them. Meanwhile, the architects of the seditious conspiracy, which isn't hidden, it's not like something we don't know about. It was out in the open. If you let Trump and his top leaders off the hook, which is what's happening, I mean, at this point, a year later, why would the DOJ not have prosecuted Trump? It shows that the whole thing will backfire again on the Democrats. And also the argument that we've made over and over again, as we've described the consolidation of this right wing movement in America, it's a white supremacist movement, it's a neo fascist movement. Its consolidation is being facilitated by the weakness of the Democratic Party or the centrist. Maybe some people call them liberals. They're not really very liberal in the traditional sense of the word. But these right wing centrist forces in American politics are showing they're completely ineffective in challenging the far right. And as a consequence, Trump is getting stronger, Trump is on the move. The Biden administration, it looks like a weak, pathetic, catastrophe, which of course it is. And as a consequence, the right and the racist movement are getting stronger. Anyway, I wanted to just say a little bit about that before we move on to some of the international issues. So yeah, Brian, you know, remember that Rhodes formed the Oath Keepers after the election of the nation's first black president, Barack Obama. And he was really motivated by Obama being elected. And he took part in all these anti-government activities after that, including the standoff at this Clive and Bundy cattle ranch out in Nevada in 2014. And I don't know if you remember that, but, you know, I know with the black community is just kind of like January 6th. We were kind of like, wow, if that had been black people, you know, 
in an armed standoff with federal agents. Wow. How would that end? Right. But, you know, he was involved in that in terms of, you know, land rights, basically saying the federal government, again, doesn't have a right to keep this cattle rancher from like grazing his cattle on public lands. Again, this whole thing keep coming up again, the to limit the power of the federal government in what could be considered a state matter or an individual rights member. That same year, 2014, the Oath Keepers showed up in Ferguson, Missouri to so-called protect businesses during the uprising after the murder of Michael Brown, the teenager killed by police there. And then remember last year or in 2020, they also showed up in very often violent clashes with peaceful protesters after the murder of George Floyd. So the fact that Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers were filmed, you know, basically shown on videotape marching into the Capitol on January 6th, this is just a kind of a an extension of what they've been doing in terms of fighting against the federal government's capacity to maintain itself as the administrative state and also to interpret, to carry out acts based on their interpretation of what the Constitution is. And that Constitution has a very limited role for Black people, for people of color to stand up for their rights and to take part in the so-called democracy. I want to just close out on this point by, you know, we'll talk more again about January 6th, of course. It's going to be an ongoing discussion. But I want to share what I think actually happened, which was that Trump was bringing thousands or tens of thousands of his supporters to put additional pressure on all of the Republicans to show them that your future as a Republican is completely associated with my effort to undo the constitutionally mandated process to certify the election. And what actually happened is that the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, and others stormed the Capitol. And I think the U.S. government was not prepared for the storming. Certainly only one-fifth of the Capitol police were even on duty. They weren't in riot gear even though 300 law enforcement officials had gathered two days before January 6th to talk about the fact that this this might happen, there was no real preparation. So instead of being blocked at the Capitol, they were able to gain easy access to the Capitol and they dispersed Congress. And the whole plan, in a way, blew up on Trump because the goal for Trump was not to carry out the assault per se. That may have gotten sort of spontaneously out of hand. The goal was to pressure Congress and pressure the members of the Republican Party to change their vote or to have Pence change his vote so that they would not certify the election. That was the goal. I mean, the operation had an objective, and the objective was to stop the election from being certified. That's the seditious conspiracy. And what the police and what the DOJ are focusing on are the individuals who either came into the Capitol building or even like in the case of Stuart Rhodes, he didn't actually go into the Capitol. He was sort of close by and he had other Oath Keepers going in. He was coordinating discussions. They had arms. They were obviously on a military type mission. But that isn't the essence of what was happening on January 6th. The essence of what was happening was Trump was trying to use his influence and his power with the Republican Party not to certify the election. It's that simple. It's that simple. And yet the DOJ is afraid 
you know, maybe it's the disease of division that Kirsten Sinema is talking about. They don't want to really go after Trump because that would be a true throwdown, not only with the Republican Party, but with the base of the Republican Party, with the Trump supporters. And so I think it's fear on the part of the DOJ, Garland's DOJ and the Biden administration, fear of Trump that stops them from doing what they could do, which is to charge Trump with seditious conspiracy. I want to go on now to Ukraine. Nicole, I think we have some audio of Vladimir Putin. He's speaking, as he does at the end of every year, in a press conference, a very freewheeling press conference. Sometimes it lasts three or four hours. There's an international journalist. I think she's a U.S. journalist. She's asking him about Ukraine. It goes on and on, but we have a shorter audio clip. I want to use her question and Putin's response to be able to help the audience again understand what's really happening, what the Russian thinking is about what's going on in Ukraine. Do we have that audio? Yeah, this is about a minute and a half, and you can't hear Putin very well. You loudly hear the translator. He's translating after a question from Diana Magne of Sky News. We have made it clear that any further NATO movement to the east is unacceptable. There is nothing unclear about this. We are not deploying our missiles over at the borders of the U.S. No. On the other hand, the U.S. is deploying its missiles close to our home, on there on the porch of our house. So, are we demanding something excessive? We're simply asking them not to deploy their attack systems over at our home. What is so unusual or peculiar about that? So, what would the Americans think if we, for example, decided to come to the border between, say, Canada and the United States or Mexico and simply deploy our missiles over there. Well, does, did Mexico and the U.S. never have any territorial disputes? What about California? What about Texas? Did you forget about that? But everything seems to have calmed down. Nobody remembers those things just like the way they remember about Crimea. We try not to remember uh, the situation in Ukraine. Who created that? Who started the crisis? Uh, was it Lenin when he declared the Soviet Union in 1922 and then the Constitution of 1924 following his death? Was following the principles of Lenin. This is a matter of security. Now, that's an interesting exchange, and I want to explain it a little bit. The eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass, and then in the south, in the Crimea, all of those areas are historically Russian. And as we mentioned last time, even as far west as Kiev, at one time in the 17th century, Kiev was the capital in what was then called Russia. And that capital has changed. It's gone to different places. It was in Moscow. It was in St. Petersburg, back to Moscow. But the eastern part of Ukraine are Russian-speaking people. But in 1922, when the Soviet Union was formed, it was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Eventually, it evolved into a union of 15 republics. But in 1922, and then as Putin mentions in 1924, the Soviet constitution that was adopted in 1924 
decides that in these areas in the western part of Russia or the eastern part of Ukraine, that those Russian-speaking people would be part of a newly formed country called Ukraine. So Ukraine becomes an independent country or a country, a republic, for the first time as a consequence of the way the Soviet Union was constructed. So Ukraine is made into a republic along with the other republics that constitute the Soviet Union. But this area is demographically mixed. It's ethnically mixed. And certainly in the eastern part of what became the Ukrainian Republic, those people are Russians. They speak the Russian language ethnically, culturally. They think of themselves as Russian. And then Crimea, which was part of Russia in the 1924 constitution, is given to Ukraine in 1954 when Khrushchev takes over as the leader of the Soviet Union following the death of Stalin in 1953. But the transfer of Crimea on the Black Sea to Ukraine is purely administrative in character because Ukraine and Russia at that time are the same country. They are part of the multinational 15-republic Union of Soviet Socialist Republics with one central government. So the transfer of Crimea to Ukraine was not considered to be a big deal because, again, it would be like taking part of New Jersey and giving it to Pennsylvania. But then the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Ukraine becomes independent. And the people in the eastern part of Ukraine are now separated from Russia, even though they are Russians. And when the coup happened in February 2014, and we discussed this at length last time, the right-wing Ukrainian government was very anti-Russian. It banned Russia as an official second language in Ukraine. There were attacks against pro-Russian forces in the eastern part of the country at a trade union building in Odessa, again, a historic part of Russia but now part of Ukraine, Odessa, that trade union confederation building was burned to the ground. And all of the people inside, all of those progressive socialist and union members, they were burned alive by the fascists who had taken power in Kiev in the coup in, in February 2014. All of this meant that the Russian government had to, under those circumstances, also act as the protector or guarantor of the peoples of eastern Ukraine and of Crimea. And Putin then and only then allowed a referendum to take place. And the people almost unanimously, 95%, voted to have Crimea as an autonomous region reassociate itself or reaffix itself to the Russian Federation. Now, that's how this began. But earlier in 2003, there was what was called an Orange Revolution the second of the so-called color revolutions. This revolution, or it was really kind of a counter-revolution, was an effort to take Ukraine and bring it into NATO at that time, to create a pro-NATO government. And the political forces in Ukraine, in this very divided country, demographically divided between West and East, culturally, linguistically divided, in addition to being politically divided, the struggle between the different parts of Ukraine goes back and forth. And then in 2014, when Yanukovych is the president of Ukraine, and he wants to actually enter the European Union, and he's trying to balance Russia against the European Union, 
but he said no to a European association agreement, which would allow Ukraine to come in to the EU, not as a full member, but come into the EU really as on a probation, but under terms that would have imposed austerity by the EU, would have imposed austerity on Ukraine the way the EU imposed austerity on Greece when it couldn't pay its debt. The Yanukovych government said, no, I'm not sure I want a better agreement. And that's when the EU and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in the U.S. helped support the protests in the Maidan Square designed to overthrow the Yanukovych government or to pressure Yanukovych to accept the terms of the European Association Agreement. And when he didn't agree to do it, the protests got louder. The West supported it unconditionally. And then Yanukovych made an agreement with the opposition. And as we said last week, foreign governments, including the EU and Russia and the United States, were all at the table. And they agreed that there would be a new election, that Yanukovych would stand for election again, that it was likely he would lose that election, that power would devolve from the central authorities to the regions. In other words, the opposition was getting mostly what it wanted. But the next day, the fascist wing of the Ukrainian movement, the pro-West Ukrainian movement, the right sector and the other fascists, they storm parliament, disperse parliament. Yanukovych flees for his life to Russia. And then all of the political forces within the American establishment, the media and both parties in Congress say, this is a great day for Ukraine. And that's when the, the banning of the Russian language is starting to take place. But since then, and this is why we're at a crisis point now, since then, as Russia has demanded Ukraine not be incorporated into NATO, the United States is putting new, heavy, and advanced weaponry all over Ukraine and directed against Russia. So Putin's response to the journalist is a response to say, look, if we did this to you, if we put advanced weapons at the U.S.-Canadian border or the U.S.-Mexican border, would it be okay? Would you say, yeah, that's fine, and Mexico and Canada can choose their allies as you're telling Ukraine only Ukraine can determine whether it wants to be in NATO or not? And you, Russia, can't tell Ukraine who its allies should be or shouldn't be. Putin is basically saying, look, if we did that with Canada or Mexico, you would not accept it. And of course, he's right about that. Because why would Russia put advanced weapons at the U.S.-Canadian border or the U.S.-Mexican border except to threaten the United States? And the United States as a major power, as a nuclear power, would never stand for it. That, my friends, is exactly what is happening at this moment. And I think that unless the U.S. steps back, unless the U.S. reconsiders its policy and acknowledges that Russia has the right to have Ukraine be a neutral country, meaning not a staging ground for NATO missiles at the Russian border, we're going to end up with a military conflict. Anyway, that's my read of the situation. Yeah, Brian, when I read about this story, when I you know hear all the commentators talking about it, it makes me think that this is Russia's version of the Cuba Missile Crisis. But it's actually worse because Russia has already allowed multiple countries on its border to have potentially offensive weapons. And I think Russia is just drawing the red line at Ukraine. You know, we listen to parts of 
Putin's speech in December when he talked about the decrease in time it will take for one of these offensive weapons to reach Russia from the eastern part of Ukraine compared to all these other weapons they have pointed at them right now. And we also know this is at the same time that Russia is alarmed by the increased capabilities of Ukraine with these drones from Turkey. So, you know, he, he laid out very clearly that this deployment of all these weapons in Ukraine are a security threat. And, you know, the other things that I've read about this just really talks about how Russia has a right to a zone of security, just like the United States does. And we act like we want to ignore that. We want to think that, you know, we can put missiles anywhere we want and that's okay. But Russia sure better had not put (laughs) missiles in Cuba, right? And the other issue that he raised in the speech is that, you know, how far this is from the United States. This is so far from the United States. And just like we were talking about Djibouti and the United States talking about some security concern in Djibouti, (laughs) it's just, it's very serious and it's not a laughing matter, but it's just ridiculous how the United States thinks it can put these offensive weapons anywhere. And a country like Russia, a nuclear power, just like China, they don't have any right to protect themselves. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that, Esther. You know, a couple of years ago, the U.S. canceled the Intermediate Range Nuclear Missile Treaty. That treaty was established between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the mid-1980s between Reagan and Gorbachev because the U.S. had encircled the Soviet Union in the early days of the Reagan administration with new tactical nuclear weapons, these advanced weapons that had a flight time of just six minutes to their targets. And they were in all the countries of Europe, in Turkey, in other words, surrounding the Soviet Union, encircling the Soviet Union with nuclear-tip missiles, intermediate-range missiles that could hit their targets in six minutes. And by the way, the targeting was every political office, every Communist Party office in the Soviet Union was targeted with an intermediate range nuclear missile. So it was designed to decapitate the Soviet leadership with a first strike weapon. Now that caused Russia to escalate its own arms spending, which in fact contributed, I think, to the decline of living standards in the Soviet Union. The the diversion of all of this money away from consumer goods to military equipment and military hardware. But that was, you know, the Soviets feared World War III was about to start in the 1980s. And that's when the huge anti-nuclear movement developed, the freeze movement developed in Europe and also in the United States. I mean, a huge movement. But that's what Putin is complaining about now, is that the U.S. using Ukraine and Ukrainian democracy as a pretext are trying to put advanced weapons right on Russia's border. And it would be such a threat that the missiles could arrive at their Russian targets in two or three minutes. Like Russia would have no defense against them. Anyway, let's tell the U.S. government that instead of spending a trillion dollars to prepare for World War III against Russia or China, that possibly some of that money could be used to actually take care of people in the United States who don't have proper Uh, protection from COVID, who aren't getting tested properly, not to mention all of the other unmet social and economic needs in the United States. Speaking of that, Nicole, another priority for the U.S. government could be actually trying to do something about climate change. I'm reminded of that when I'm thinking nine inches of snow in Mississippi. 
more than nine inches of snow in Mississippi and in North Carolina, and regions in South Carolina had half an inch of ice. This was a recent storm that just happened just a couple days ago. It knocked out power to nearly 200,000 people, including 27,000 people in Georgia and more than 40,000 people each in South and North Carolina. So, I mean, this is a massive, massive storm, massive snowstorm in a, an area that does not normally get this kind of snow, obviously. One report on Sunday had 200 car crashes as a result of the snow in North Carolina, and part of a highway in Kentucky had to be shut down and people were stranded, which, you know, reminds us of just two weeks ago, um, another huge storm came through where hundreds of people were stranded on a major stretch of highway in Virginia for more than 30 hours, and the vast majority of them didn't have food, didn't have water, didn't have heat. They were you know, turning on their car for a few minutes to get warm and then turning it off because they also didn't have additional fuel supplies because they were, you know, just driving along until, you know, this huge, huge snowstorm came and people were stuck on the road. And when you have that kind of a storm two weeks ago and then Mississippi gets more than nine inches of snow, it begs the question about what on earth is going on with the climate and how it's actually possible for this to happen. And I think it really begs the question, how are all of us going to be dealing with this moving forward? I mean, this is climate change isn't coming. It's here. People are already grappling with the horrendous effects of it. All the huge wildfires we've seen in on the other side of the country, you know, just this year and last year, you know, we're already dealing with it and it's hitting the most vulnerable the hardest. And this is obviously a huge, huge fight and something that the capitalists are deeply not prioritizing. So it's something that we have to prioritize and something that we have to fight back about. Esther, we said at your urging that we're always going to have at least one really positive story in the socialist program. There is a positive story, a victorious win for folks in Newark, New Jersey. Yes. So the people in Newark, New Jersey's East End, and that's the Ironbound neighborhood, they are victorious in stopping, at least for now, a fracked gas power plant from being placed in their neighborhood. So this area already has three power plants, three Superfund sites, a fat rendering plant, which is like kind of a food processing, animal meat processing plant. Sounds really awful. During the Vietnam War, they had the largest production of Agent Orange in that neighborhood in another facility. And, you know, that also produced dioxin, which is incredibly cancer causing. And that was being dumped into the river. And they're also assaulted daily by thousands of trucks, you know, going, you know, in and out of New York City to deliver things, right? So what happened is that the Passaic Valley Sewerage Commission pulled this planned vote to begin construction of this plant, which would be gas-fired, and it would be at its sewage facility in the neighborhood. The cancellation of the vote came at the request of Governor Phil Murphy. And because of community pressure, because of community uprising, organizing together to say, you know, we've had enough, you know, we're tired of being a sacrifice zone here for all this industry, all these 
military installations even, you know, historically. And so right now the people have won and, you know, we should do whatever we can to support the people of Ironbound to let them know that they're not alone, that there are neighborhoods all over the country that don't want to be sacrifice zones, that they deserve to have clean water, clean air, you know, unpolluted ground around them for their children to play on. And this is another thing that the United States government can be investing in instead of in war machinery and in provoking World War III overseas. Well, we need to clean up our own neighborhoods and make it safe for our people to live. All right, Nicole, I want to go on because time is running short. You know, we have highlighted over and over again in this show how the U.S. system of government, the U.S. social norms, certainly U.S. capitalism, are perpetrators not only of racism, but also the worst elements of patriarchy, the worst elements of sexism and the oppression of women. Now there, of course, is the offensive against women's right to control their own bodies with the attacks on abortion rights. That's going to be and should be a primary issue in the coming months. But again, we have in the courts over and over and over again, and with the police, the crime of violence against women, the murder of women, the sexual assault, rape of women, has been so trivialized by the courts, and the double standards are so obvious. I mean, here the U.S. judicial system says, we are the independent judiciary, we are the rule of law. I want to talk about this in relationship to a couple recent cases. Go ahead. Yeah. And thanks to Esther for flagging these cases. I think they're really important to talk about. One of them happened in Illinois. Drew Clinton, who was 18 years old at the time last October, he sexually assaulted a 16-year-old girl while she was unconscious at a graduation party. You know, she testified. This 16-year-old stood up after being raped She had to stand strong and testify and deal with all the trauma she was going through. And he was sentenced to four years in prison. And the judge has now overturned his conviction, overturned the conviction of the rapist, the 18-year-old, saying that he had served nearly five months in jail. And according to the judge, that was, quote, plenty of punishment. The judge went on, and I should say, this is Judge Robert Adrian, just in case you're interested in, in looking him up or going out to protest about this insanity. He said, quote, that is not just. There is no way for what happened in this case that this teenager should go to the Department of Corrections. I will not do that, unquote. He said if he ruled the sentence was unconstitutional, that his decision could be reversed on appeal. So instead, what he did was, quote, find that the people failed to prove their case. He said that it was really the fault of the parents and the other adults who gave liquor to the teenagers at the party and, you know, failed to be good parents. And he said, this is what happens, quote, when we have people, adults having parties for teenagers and they allow co-eds and female people to swim in their underwear in the swimming pool. And no, underwear is not the same as swimming suits, unquote. I mean, this is incredibly disgusting. She was unconscious. She also, by the way, had noted earlier in the night that she was not interested, not only could she not give consent when she was unconscious, she also earlier in the evening, and this is a quote from the assistant state's attorney, in fact, earlier in the evening, she had specifically indicated that she did not want any sexual contact with this defendant, unquote. 
So, I mean, all you need is that she's unconscious. That's lack of consent. Like you can't give consent if you're unconscious and you also can't give consent if you're 16 years old. So this is just a really, really disgusting case. And it's not the first time this has happened. People, you know, I think will remember Brock Turner, the college age Stanford athlete and swimmer who raped, I believe, also an unconscious girl. The judge essentially said, you know, you have so much potential like this isn't for you. We, we shouldn't be putting you in prison. So there's another case as well where a judge in Kentucky who was also, again, talking to and dealing with someone who was convicted of sexual assault. The judge in Kentucky offered Brandon Scott Price, who's 28. Brandon Scott Price was working as a guard at a jail and he sexually assaulted a female inmate. I mean, just a disgusting sexual predator. He was convicted of sexual assault and the judge in Kentucky said, well, instead of jail time, you could just rejoin the military. Do you want to do that? It really shows just how little women are regarded, just how, you know, women, I mean, you can hear it in the, that initial judge's comments, you know, this is what happens at these parties. Well, it does happen a lot. And one of the reasons it happens a lot is that people aren't prosecuted for it. Men aren't prosecuted for it. And it just really shows the what little regard these judges and so many people have for women's rights and women's rights in regards to their own actual bodies. I mean, we talked earlier about abortion rights and again, not having rights to your own body to determine your own future and the future of your physical body. It's the root of the exact same problem. Exactly, Nicole. When you think about in both the Texas abortion law and the Mississippi abortion law, they didn't even have the standard kind of BS waiver for incest or rape. So they didn't even have any provisions for a woman who might be raped and seeking an abortion. And the Texas governor even had the outrageous statement when someone asked him about this to say that, oh, I'm going to eliminate rape. So obviously, this isn't a serious comment to make from a governor. And when you look at the number of untested rape kits around the country, it's really a scandal. Rape is not handled as a serious crime. Police departments around the country, while investing in, you know, military gear and attacking protesters, they aren't doing their jobs. They're not really investigating rape cases. They're not testing rape kits, serial rapists coming from the military, you know, which is something that, you know, is related to that last case you mentioned, they're let back into the population. They're not, you know, if they're not prosecuted in the military, they're not prosecuted when they get out of the military either. So this is a very serious issue that the people have to relate to the ongoing struggle for women's rights, because right now you can see in the courts, in the military, that this is not being taken seriously. And when you look at the increased way that women are targeted for rape as a violent crime and as a hate crime online with a type of rhetoric from the far right, a lot of these far right militia type groups, they are also targeting women in this type of way with this type of language and threats. This is something to definitely watch and link to our fight for women's rights. I think this will end up being the center of the struggle in the coming months. Again, the Supreme Court is planning, it seems, by all indications, to essentially end Roe v. Wade. And of course, this requires a massive fight back. So the struggle against racism, the struggle against patriarchy and sexism, the struggle against bigotry and oppression directed against the LGBTQ community, 
the struggle of workers for basic rights to be safe and to have decent wages, the struggle of our communities to have decent and affordable housing. All of these struggles have to be linked together in our socialist movement. Nicole, Esther, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf as we discuss the biggest stories of the economy. And then on Thursday, we'll be joined by Professor Ken Hammond. We're going to take another look at U.S.-China relations as U.S.-Russia relations are going south, becoming more and more dangerous. So, too, is the relationship between the U.S. and China. So we will visit that issue once again. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.